and we're going to jump in. Lord, I love you and I thank you for the grace that you've shown us already. Thank you that um, you've brought people here for a reason. And I know that your word and your spirit will speak so very, very clearly. We love you, Jesus, and ask right now for this kind of grace. In your name, amen. All right. Last Sunday, we talked on love and mercy and forgiveness and how that integrates. And that we as, as humans, one of the most unhealthy things that we can allow to happen to us is to become bitter. To become bitter. Now, when you're a little, when you're a newborn, you have a very unique concept of yourself. And as a few months go by, that newborn discovers what some people call the reality principle, which means you're not going to get everything you want in this life. (laughs) And you have this collision with expectation, want, need, and reality, and you're not going to get everything you want. Okay, And for some children and toddlers, uh, it's really hard to deal with that. Have you ever seen a toddler have a temper tantrum? Because you don't get what they want? You're laughing because you know about what, just about what I'm going to say. Have you ever seen an adult have a temper tantrum like a toddler because they're not getting what they want? It's a thing, people. The reality principle. Our wants, our needs can collide head on with reality and it's tough. All right, bitterness. We covered the teaching in Matthew that delineates the kind of debt a servant owed the king. All right, 10,000 talents. Now, if you crunch the numbers, and these are really, really good numbers, all right, it is absolutely radical, absurd, illogical debt. First of all, no king would ever do that. You don't give 10,000 talents to a slave. You just don't do that. That would be, that would be a horrendous mistake. But in the, and it's a parable. Understand, this is a parable. Okay, it's a, it's, it's a story And deep inside that story is a truth that we don't need to miss. And so in the parable, the king decides, hey, pay up. Pay up, little low-level slave. You owe me 10,000 talents. And as you recall, the slave begs for mercy. The king grants it. And a radical, absurd, log-sized debt, log-in-the-eye kind of debt is gone, wiped away. And then that guy forgiven 10,000 talents worth of debt, moral sin debt, now goes and finds one of his buddies that has a little speck in his eye. <laughs> and if you look at the crunch, about 100 days of labor as, a point to, as, a, as opposed to 54.7 million days of labor. And he chokes him and says, pay back the 100 days that you owe me. And the guy says the very same, please have mercy on me. I'll pay it back, I promise. But the, the, the guy forgiven much shows no mercy to the one who owes him little. And then the scripture says, and this is the tough part, that the king reversed his decision. The king reversed his decision. And in that, the first slave is called in and he's judged horrifically. Now, I taught that Sunday. And guess what? I spoke the truth. Without compromise, I spoke the truth. But guess what? Sometimes people don't hear me. (laughs) Linda, the way I'm talking. Steve, the way I'm talking. Can you imagine? And so guess what? They thought, 
you lose your salvation? And the answer is no, you don't. You don't. If you've been born again, listen to this. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. If you're born again, if you're a Christian, it's permanent. You cannot lose your salvation. Now, if you're a Christian and you have an unforgiving spirit, you will have to account for that. It's not this blanket soft sale. Well, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Don't take Matthew 18 serious. He didn't mean that. That was a parable. No, that's wrong. (laughs) We will go face to face with Almighty God. There will be judgment. And we will have to give an account And I have a hunch that we're going to get a very forgiving spirit when that happens. What do you think? You bet. You bet we will. Okay. God knows how to clean things up. But I want you guys to understand in no way, in no way to want you to believe that if you have a hard time with somebody, bitterness, that that means you're not a Christian. That is not true. Okay. All right. Now, let me me push this with you guys a little bit. I, I was hoping that Margaret was going to be here. So, hey, Margaret, I am so, I'm going to use the picture you sent me this morning, okay? Margaret, we, uh, last, in talking about bitterness, we talked about our endocrine system and that we're not wired for it, okay? And there's a group of hormones. There's a group of hormones called the catecholamines. And you know about that, Tiffany and others. we got several doctors here. The catecholamine group, and there are a specific group of hormones that are for fight and flight, Adrenaline, it is designed to get you going and you're either going to punch the bear in the face and beat the bear or you're going to run away from the bear or you're going to be so sneaky you can hide and the bear will never find you, right? Fight, flight, freeze. And then the fourth one is appease regarding trauma. When you are bitter and you are under severe stress because you have an unforgiving spirit, or you're experiencing trauma, you get consistent radical dumps of dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. And that is exhausting, okay? Now you also have what are called the glucocorticoids, also known as uh, corticosteroids like prednisone. And one that is produced, produced right out of your adrenals is called cortisol, okay? Or hydrocortisone. And that is an anti-inflammatory like prednisone. And these hormones are designed to help you make it through the day, actually help you regulate all kinds of processes, especially when you've been stressed out. Okay? You've got one system trying to fire you up, another system trying to calm you down and take away inflammation, all this stuff. I'm telling you, inflammation is bad on the body. Stress, bitterness. An unforgiving spirit is hard on the body. Or to put it in other words, when you're an adult, when you're an adult with a toddler mindset. Know anybody like that? Adults with toddler mindsets. And the only way for that adult to function is if they get their way. And if you know anything about the adult world, do you know anybody that gets their way over everything? It's not going to happen. Okay. All right, now, Margaret, thank you. This is the shout-out to Margaret. This guy is Eugene, all right? He's Russian. This is Eugene. 
I think he's a handsome fellow. By the way, he's, he's an artist, and he's, his dream is to become an artist. And he is forced to go into war with Germany. Okay? After four years, Eugene looks like this. That's what stress hormones do to you. The trauma of war, all right? The trauma of having constant dumps of dopamine and adrenaline and norepinephrine and then cortisol to help regulate that and your body trying to deal with the stress that you could die any minute, any hour, any day in horrifically harsh conditions. That's just four years. Someone commented, um, a historian, that the first photo Eugene's looking at you and the second photo he's staring through you. I go, that's pretty good, pretty good. Here's another photo, different uniform, but still that gaunt kind of view in the face of trauma. He's an older man. He did become an artist and and captured a lot of what happened in World War II uh, in art and really did a great job. He died uh, in about 1973. Okay, story of Eugene, all right. We are not unlike him. That if we encounter crushing, heartbreaking relationships, we encounter all kinds of problems and things that break our hearts that we've got a lot of stress hormones. And if we allow an unforgiving spirit to form, it tax, taxes us and the aging process kicks in. By the way, just real quick, three of the most important forgiveness prayers that you need to pray, that I need to pray. Number one, the prayer of salvation, asking God's forgiveness and asking to be born again through repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The most important forgiveness prayer I'm going to pray right there. Second one is that you practice forgiveness on those who've sinned against you or the people you love. And that's a tough one, right? It's one thing for someone to, to, to punch you in the nose, but when they punch somebody in the nose that you love, a spouse, child, sibling, ooh, that can bring on a whole new level of, I want to get revenge right now. I love that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. Time, time to get a tooth. Time for me to get their eye. You know, and it's payback. Boy, you got to be careful with payback, payback spirit. And the third is that we have the ability to, to forgive ourselves. Can I, can I do a little 30-second session with you? You ready? If you're asking forgiveness for the same sin multiple times... You haven't settled this one. If you're still asking forgiveness for the same thing that happened, whether it's last month or last decade or 25 years ago or something that haunts you from childhood and you're still asking forgiveness for the same thing, you have not settled up on number three, okay? Now, let me show you this. This is interesting. I use this with my clients because... uh, Counseling and therapy is pretty challenging work. And I, and I thought, this, this is actually really good for everybody to see this. So let's say this person walks in, my, they get referred to me, and they've had a pretty good portion of, hey, some good stuff has happened. It's not bad. Uh, but wow, we've got a lot of sad, a lot of bad. Okay, we've got a lot of trauma. Okay, so this, this client's got some tough stuff going on. 
and I sit down with them, we get intakes done, it's time to, it's time to get to work, okay? And I say, all right, based on your intakes, we're struggling here with, with so-and-so, what's going on? And they take just a little tiny bit of maybe the good part of their life, but some of the, the bad, some of the trauma, they give me a little bit of that, and then they give that to me in this little tiny exchange of information. I gotta try to understand that, number one. And then number two, I've gotta make a decision on what I'm gonna do about that. I'm going to say, wow, it hurts me to hear that. That's terrible. I'm sad too. Or I'm going to go, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. You know? Of course, I wouldn't say that. But you get my, I got to say something, right? That's my job. Guess what? Some Christians who think they know better I take that little bitty bit of information, take a couple of scriptures, and slam it down their throats. And guess what? They have absolutely no idea what's in the 99.999% of the whole of their lives. What I'm trying to say is, I don't know anything about that person. They just gave me a little bit of data I better be real careful with how I handle that and opinions that I form about them. Right? You know that, Rachel. Ooh. Talk about jumping to conclusions when we know nothing about them. For example, let's just take, this is a fun one. Not that anybody in here battles anxiety. Hi, I'm Chris. I have a new life in Christ and boy, do I battle anxiety. We might think, oh, you know, anxiety is, you've never learned to control your emotions. Come on, suck it up. Buttercup's time to grow up. Rain it in. Rain in those emotions. As though you're irresponsible. Or quit acting like a baby. Or you're ignorant. What's the matter? Don't you know better? You know? And we start saying things like that. But if we understood what's going on in the background, we would never say that. Never. You've got to be real quick on shooting from the hip with scripture or something like that to people who might like, okay, so let's talk about forgiveness in this one. What kind of practice or what the practice of forgiveness in this person's life? You think it's going to be hard on them? What the practice might look like for that person? Think it'd be hard? What about that person? It's going to look differently? Why? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. Um, there's a lot of people in this room, and you're on the spectrum. <laughs> You've got some just little bitty dark stuff. Others, wow, big, huge section of your life is really dark. I know. I get it. I literally understand that. So what I want you to know is that the practice of forgiveness may be a little different for you than for me. It may take some time for you to say, you know what, I'm tired of holding on. Got to let it go. Take the handcuffs off. All right. You got it? All right. These are some of the things we've been digging through, working through, and I am uh, grateful. Today, I'm going to tackle faith. Really excited about this one. Um, First of all, here's a little Greek and Hebrew just because it sounds cool. How's that? The Greek word for faith is pistis. Pistis. And in Hebrew, it's imunah. And guess what it means? It means faith. That's all it means. All right? Now, what does faith, the semantic range of meaning, I'm going to translate these words 
It means this, basically this, is to be steady, to be firm, to believe, to trust, to be loyal, to have fidelity, to be persuaded, to be convicted, to act out of conviction, reverence, to be convinced of something, to fulfill a promise or an obligation, to keep your word, to act righteously. I made a promise to Tom James. He and I were going to meet a few nights ago. And uh, I was excited. I love hanging out with Tom and some other cops. And so I completely forget. And, and Alan, I'm on, on the opposite side of town. It's in a downpour. I'm on a date with Lisa. And it hits me. <gasps> and I text Tom. I am so sorry. I know it's going to be there at 5.15. It's already 6-something. Would you please forgive me? Why? Because I want, to be, I want to be a man of my word. It's an issue of being faithful with the things that I say. You got it? You understand what faith is? Okay. Uh, pretty wide range of meaning. All right. Trust. By the way, you cool guys over here, remember what I said about the chair? Okay. How is the chair? You're sitting in the chair. How is that like faith? It won't fall down, so you relax. You're trusting in a chair, right? Now, can you imagine someone who says, oh, 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 I'm not a chair atheist. I believe in chairs. And like, Great. Did you ever sit in one? Oh, um, that's a different matter, you know, but I'm not a chair atheist. You'd say, well, that's silly. Well, <laughs> not so silly. If you believe the chair can hold you up, you relax and sit in the chair. Do you believe God can hold you up? Ah, there it is. Do you believe he can hold you up? Do you believe that he can bear the weight of all your history, of all your regrets? Okay, let's dig in. This is, I know you guys, you're so smart. Look at this. This is Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Christ is teaching about, it's like this great teaching on faith. That if God can clothe the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace... That's a picture, by the way, of a woman who gathers tinder and things easily burned and puts them in an outdoor oven so she can bake bread. Will he not much more clothe you, you people of little faith? You guys who are afraid of the chair? Okay. If God knows how to take care of flowers and birds, won't he take care of you? Matthew 14. Seeing the wind, he became frightened, and when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out with his hand, took hold of him, and said, You of little faith, he's talking to Peter, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. So, so doubting is antithetical to faith. If you have faith, you'll sit in the chair. If you doubt, you won't sit in the chair. Luke 17 the disciples said to the Lord, increase our faith. By the way, this is the only time that's ever asked in the New Testament. This is the only time it's recorded. Increase my faith. And the Lord said, look, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Faith is real. Faith is powerful. John 20, I love this one. This dude named Thomas, who evidently was probably the scientific one of the group, said, well, I'm not going to believe until I see the holes in his hands and the, the wound in his side. And if I see the evidence, I will believe. 
So Jesus, already knowing that in advance, meets with the guys and says, hey, doubting Thomas, come here, come here. And he says, put your hand in, this, in my wound. Can you imagine? Mm. Put your finger in the holes, come on. And you know what Thomas, what his response is? It is the first most well-formed theological statement of who Jesus is. In Old and New Testament, it's like, he gets it. And he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus is called God. <laughs> my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe, pistis, pistuo, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's me and you. For those of you who sit in the chair, that's me and you. We believe even though we don't see. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Christ Church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John should be the four best friends you ever have. Okay? Read the Gospels because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's hard for a lot of us because we are scientific, empirically driven people. Hebrews 11.1 1 is the most detailed functional definition of faith that you're going to get in the New Testament. Faith is uh, certainty or confidence of things hoped for in the proof or evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But the one who comes to God must believe that he exists. Ah, you believe in chairs. And that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. First Peter, this is a tough one because our faith can be tested. Our faith can be tested. And the idea here is that, verse 7, that the proof of our faith is more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire. I love verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. This is faith. All right. Check this out. Ways we show faith. Number one, we show faith in facts and information. The gospel the created order, math, one plus one is two. We don't struggle with that. Uh, by the way, James 2.19, be careful with the facts. Do the demons believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah. Just because you have the facts doesn't mean you're born again. Uh, faith in God, his Father, Son, Spirit. Faith in the promises of God's word. Why would we ask forgiveness again and again for something that's been forgiven? Why would we do that? Do you not trust him in his word? Are you not sitting in the chair? Why would you ask it again and again if he promises forgiveness? Um, faith in our relationships with people. You know, I was talking to Rebecca last night that the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind of faithfulness. That, that word faithfulness implies relationships. How you do relationships. Faith in our decisions, things that are logical, things that are illogical. You know, um, a lot of us, again, with that empirically shaped brain, if, if we have an option for a new job, we run a risk-benefit ratio. We do the pro-con analysis. And if there's more pro than con, done. We say the good thing, the better thing is God's will. And yet, there are times in which God may lead you in, by faith 
to that which is appears to be illogical. Okay, um, Exodus fourteen. Fourteen is an example. What about faith and peace and calm? Do you understand that when when we're calm and things are going well and the inner toddler <laughs> is getting their way? God is so good. Do you hear those little children out there? It's probably not my grandchildren. I just want you to know that. It, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be my, my grandbabies. When we get our way, God is good. Did you hear me? When we get our way, God is good. But when we don't get our way, remember George Costanza, that crazy line on Seinfeld? He's an atheist until something bad happens. <laughs> and now he believes in God, you know? So what about faith in crisis and tragedy? And Stephen is going to be reading a letter to us from Phyllis Pierce, Phyllis and Jim, about faith in crisis and tragedy. And then we have this faith that resists compromise, hypocrisy, and sin. Okay? So those are, those are a lot of the ways that we, we show faith. Our, our, our belief, what we believe, forgive my typo, this is about 4 a.m. in the morning, people. Our beliefs, right, define our behaviors, and our behaviors define our beliefs. That which we refuse to change, we choose to embrace. All right, let's look at this. Um, these are the things at Christ Church that matter to us as the body of Christ here. This is what I need from you. This is what you need from me, all right? Caring for the, un- for the unprotected little babies. Um, confession and repentance, Evangelism, faith, fasting, all these things. Faith unlocks that stuff. Do you understand? Faith is what makes it have power and we we experience the wisdom of doing life God's way. The wisdom of love and mercy and prayer and purity and and God's word. And we'll get into that. The, The wisdom of being silent. Sometimes the best thing to do is to not say anything. It's one of the best things to do. Just be quiet. Okay, Psalm 46.10, stop. In Hebrew, stop. Let God be God. Faith unlocks all of those things. And uh, you are the body of Christ. I want you to take ownership with me on this teaching. I trust the Holy Spirit inside of you. Faith, doubt. What does God want us to do with our doubts? What do we do with that? Scriptures that confuse us or we struggle with, those kinds of things. All right, you're the church comment. How do we live this out? To be people of faith and not people who are, quite frankly, function as agnostics. We're church-going agnostics. We believe in God, but he's out there somewhere. And you go to church for social reasons. You're a functional agnostic who attends church. We don't want that. We want intimacy with God, genuine intimacy and faith. So how do we do it? And what about our doubts? Do, do doubts disqualify us? Okay, what do you think? How do we do this stuff? How do we live out faith, real faith? Chris, I think it's important to recognize skepticism versus cynicism. Uh-huh. Or skepticism looks for an answer, whether it be from scripture or from another person. Cynicism refuses acknowledge an answer if it doesn't agree with us. Yeah. And to have a level of faith to be able to see others 
other believers as valuable to need other people, other believers, even in the midst of not knowing 99% of their world, allows us to be able to exercise that faith, even if it has a level of skepticism. I think skepticism is healthy. Mm-hmm. It allows us to get to that place of faith that's not blind. Yeah. Is there any Old Testament backup for what you just said? About doubts and skepticism? Can you drop some names? <laughs> How about Abraham? How about Jacob? We can go on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So God's not afraid of our doubts, not afraid of our fears. You know, if he was, what would his response to Thomas have been like? What would he have said to Thomas? He would have sounded like a belittling, chiding parent. I've been with you three years now. How many miracles have you? Count them up, buddy. How many? Look at me when I'm talking to you. You're still doubting. Oh, my God. What am I going to have to do to prove to you that you need to start trying? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and if he did, we'd say, oh, God's angry. Don't mess up. But instead, he does the opposite. Thomas, come here. Your doubts don't scare me. Your doubts don't deconstruct my identity. I know exactly who I am. And your doubts are not going to make the heavens tip off their access and the throne of God teeter because you're struggling with doubts. Come on, let's work it out. I want you to know me. Let's settle this thing. It's okay to have doubts. It's not okay to be cynical, Patch. You're right. Because a cynic, when... Getting the answer that stares them in the face refuses to accept it. They won't sit in the chair. Okay. Somebody else. How do we do this? How do we grow and mature in our faith? What do we do? Kathy? Yeah? That's so good, Kathy. Janice? Yeah, I agree with Kathy on that, too. Um, For me, bringing it kind of into today's world, it seems like, you know, the Bible tells us over 365 times, do not fear, do not be afraid. And when I see things like banks collapsing and stuff, I get a little scared. I don't really know what's coming. And so the reality of it is, am I going to say, okay, Lord, you brought me this far, I'm going to let go of that, and I'm going to trust that whatever happens is in your will, or that you will carry me through it so I can handle it, however, whatever wow. comes about. But, you know, as we look at today's world, it's, it's, there's some scary stuff going on. Yeah. And um, some of it's kind of hard to, you can't just bury your head in the sand, so we have to rely on him. Yeah. One way or another. 
you're getting at it. You know, we can have faith when it's calm and peaceful, right? When our nest egg is intact, right? And the inheritance that we got maybe from grandma or grandpa, and we're kind of set and we're secure. Yeah, great time to have faith. But what if this goofy government goofs it up even more than they already have and another bank, and all of a sudden you lose everything. And now... Matthew 6 comes to life about how flowers are clothed and birds are fed. All that click makes sense. Sure. Can we have faith when we're in crisis and tragedy? And boy, that takes some stuff. Um, Jenna? Yes. Yeah, you know, it, you know when someone is not faithful in church, huh? You know. We need each other. It helps. David? She said everything else. There you go. Yeah. All right. Every, everyone turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want you to see something. 1 Corinthians 13. Okay. I want you to try to compare Paul's concept of faith with Paul's concept of love. 13.1, if I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but I do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Habariyaku? Habariyaku? Missouri? Mungu anakopendesana? Santesana? Santesana? What am I, a clanging symbol? I spoke to you in Swahili. Okay. Listen, we can talk a whole lot of faith and religious psychobabble and all kinds of denominational goofiness that draws attention to ourselves. But if we don't have love, our faith is confusing. Please get that. If we don't have love, our faith is confusing. And when you have highly religious parents, highly religious parents who do not know how to love, it creates radical confusion in the children. Did you get that? (laughs) When you have highly religious parents who don't understand grace, high law, low grace, highly religious and dysfunction and love, it creates so much damage in children. And then we're surprised that our children struggle. And we can speak all the psychobabble languages and all the stuff. But if we don't have love, it's confusing. So if I have the gift of prophecy, ooh, I can figure you out. I can read your mind in the spirit. Whoa, I know what you're thinking. I know your motives. <gasps> I can judge your motives. How much power would that be? And I can speak prophetically. I move in the, in the prophetic. <gasps> and I know all mysteries. Oh, 
Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? And I have all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove a mountain and not just move a bush, but remove a mountain, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that my so that so that glory so that I may glory, but do not have love, it does me no good. What I want you to see is that Paul is attacking a narcissistic, egotistical faith that existed in the church of Corinth, where church members were more concerned about getting attention with their faith than they were about actually walking in the Holy Spirit. And yet they were claiming to be the religious people. And they were far from it. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. If you got real faith, the real thing, you will love. You will love. It will be proven in your relationships. Not in how many mountains you move. Not in how many... $20 bills you give to the guy or the gal on the, on the corner that says, please help me, I'm, I'm, I'm destitute and poor and I'm trying to buy a bus ticket to St. Louis. No. It's not in how many tongues you can speak, man-made or of angels. But it's your ability to be loving because love is patient and kind. It's not jealous, does not brag, it's not arrogant doesn't act shamefully or disgracefully, does not seek its own benefit, does not, it's not easily provoked or angered, does not keep an account of a wrong suffered, ooh, sounds like bitterness, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, keeps every confidence, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, it never fails. But now faith, hope, and love remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What a perfect time for Paul to say the greatest of these is faith. It'd be the perfect time to say it, right? And he doesn't. He doesn't. Paul doesn't fall ploy to the religious games being played at Corinth. Paul says the great thing, the big thing is love. And if you get that, you're going to, by default, by default, you're going to model a tremendous love. All right. I'm going to pray over you and bless you. And we're going, to, we're going to worship in song. Father, thank you so much for the challenge and the call of your word to be people of faith. To believe and to work through our doubts. You're good and you're kind, Abba Father. And I beg your blessings right now, please. In Jesus' name, amen.